0: in the necropolis of Dublin, Prospect or Glasnevin Cemetery, where I'm comfortably seated on. I don't know whose grave it is anyway, but it's quite comfortable. I can see the front gate and the chapel is behind me. So I know exactly where Dignam's funeral came and where it went. At the opening of the fifth episode, we're in Newbridge Avenue, where Dignam lived. And the episode opens with a number of people getting into a carriage. Mr. Power, Martin Cunningham, Simon Dedalus, and Mr. Bloom.
1: Martin Cunningham first poked his silk-hatted head into the creaking carriage and, entering deftly, seated himself. Mr. Power stepped in after him, curving his height with care. Come on, Simon. After you, Mr Bloom said. Mr Dedalus covered himself quickly and got in, saying... Yes, yes. Are we all here now? Martin Cunningham asked. Come along, Bloom. Mr Bloom entered and sat in the vacant place.
0: Going up out of Irish town towards the Dodder Bridge, Bloom sees Stephen Dedalus, whom we last left near the pigeon house on the strand at Sandy Mount, So he's obviously walking into town from the pigeon house or that area. And Bloom notices, he says he's careless, he has mud on his boots. Of course, we know why he has mud on his boots. He's been walking on the strand. Anyway, he remarks on him to Simon Dedalus's father, who starts giving out and saying, well, is that cad Mulligan with him?
1: Mulligan is a contaminated, bloody, double-dyed Russian, by all accounts. His name stinks all over Dublin. with the help of God and his blessed mother. I'll make it my business to write a letter one of those days to his mother or his aunt, or whatever she is that will open her eye as wide as a gate. I'll tickle his catastrophe, believe you me.
0: We go over the bridge into Pierce Street. He passes the ancient concert rooms, St. Mark's Church, which is still there, and Queen's Theatre, which is no longer there. He goes up to Lear Street, cross O'Connell Bridge, and go up O'Connell Street, and at the corner of Abbey Street, they see a bent figure going along, uh, who turns out to be Reuben Dodd, and there's a lot of sarcastic remarks about it. The implication being that he's Jewish and a moneylender, and I think it's Martin Cunningham says...
1: We have all been there. His eyes met Mr Bloom's eyes. He caressed his beard, adding... Well, nearly all of us.
0: Again, this is putting Bloom outside the experience of the others, to see a child's funeral going up the hill of what was then Rutland Square, which is now Parnell Square, and Bloom thinks of a son who died and thinks, too, of the children of Dignam, and he has a great human feeling and compassion. So they go up the hill, up North Frederick Street, onto Blessington Street, Barclay Road, past the top of Eccles Street, where, of course, Bloom lives and then round onto the North Circular Road, where they meet a herd of cattle. They go up the North Circular as far as Dumfries Corner, which is now Doyle's Corner, and they recall that Harsler was in a hurry to catch (laughs) the cemetery before it closed. It went round too fast, and the coffin slipped out, and the body rolled round the road, and Bloom imagines what would happen if Dignam was to fall out of his coffin, and was quite horrified by the whole idea. Bum!
2: Upset, a coffin bumped out onto the road, burst open. Paddy Dignam shot out and rolling over stiff in the dust in a brown habit too large for him. Red face, grey now, mouth falling open, asking, what's up now?
0: So they then go on along Fibsborough Road to Gun's Bridge where they see a barge which obviously came up from the Midlands somewhere and, of course, the canal passes through Mullingar, which brings... Blooms memories to Millie. Soon
2: be a woman, Mullingar, dearest Pepley.
0: And as they come near the cemetery, they go past a terrace of houses, and it's pointed out that this is where the child murder case happened. And they then arrive at the cemetery... Going to the chapel, Father Coffey conducts the service, and much to Mr. Bloom's disappointment, he doesn't think an awful lot of it and is trying to translate the Latin.
2: Makes them feel more important to be prayed over in Latin. Requiem mass, crepe weavers, black-edged notepaper, your name on the altar list. Chilly place this.
0: They wheel the coffin out. It's buried... He's looking round. who's there. A, a mysterious man in a Macintosh turns up who makes him 13 there. And Hines is there in a semi-professional capacity insofar as he's going to report the funeral for the evening telegraph. And he's taking down all the names. Now, Hines, we know... Borrowed three shillings three weeks beforehand from Bloom, and in spite of at least three reminders, it hasn't made any effort to pay it back. And yet, he doesn't even know Bloom's first name. He has to come over and <laughs> to add insult to injury, since everyone regards Bloom as a Jew. Hines asks him what his Christian name is, uh, he tells him. And then Hines said, Who's that fellow over there? The
2: fellow is over there in the. He looked around. Macintosh? Yes, I saw him. Mr. Bloom said. Where is he now? Macintosh.
1: Hines said, scribbling.
2: I don't know who he is. Is that his name?
1: He moved away, looking about him. No. Mr. Bloom began turning and stopping.
2: I say, Hines.
0: Before Bloom can correct him, he's disappeared. They then are walking back to the gates, and someone suggests that they go round by Parnell's grave. And Bloom looks with a cold eye on a lot of the graves that are there, sees a rat and thinks about what the rat's doing and, oh, what happens is when we're buried. It's interesting the way they're paired off. Bloom is paired off with Tom Kiernan, who, of course, is a Protestant, and, of course, Bloom is, well, we don't know what he is. Then we see Martin Cunningham, who has a good job in the castle, in the Crown Clerk's office, I think it is, and he is walking along with Menton, who is a solicitor. So the hierarchy is observed and where they go. But Bloom sees that there's a dint in Mr. Menton's hat and points it out to him. And uh, Mr. Menton, well, I say, just stares at him and doesn't do anything until Mr. Cunningham points out that there is actually a dent, and then he takes it out and fixes it and says, very gruff, thank you. And Bloom is a bit crestfallen, but says to himself... How grand we are this morning and of course he sees the gates and realises that he's escaped this time someone else was buried so there'll be another day and that's the end of the episode
3: It seems to be the first episode where there is a bit more action. Uh, we have a long journey through the city, uh, diagonally, we'll see more of the city than in any other chapter. The whole thing is rather cinematographic. Uh, often it's seen from a moving vehicle. By that time, I think we've all become used to the interior monologues, and it's no longer surprising. We take it for granted. Gasworks. Hooping cough, they say, it cures. Good
2: job Millie never got it. Poor children, doubles them up, black and blue in convulsions. Shame, really. Got off lightly with illness compared. Only measles, flaxseed tea, scarlatina, influenza epidemics, canvassing for death. Don't miss this chance.
3: Again, for the first time, Bloom is in a social kind of setup. Before that, he didn't talk to any of the butchers. So no. The other thing is that Joyce was quite good at a situation that's a real life. There are four men in sitting in a carriage, and you have to talk. But at a funeral, you can't talk about everything at the beginning. Later on, it'll soften. And so you have to make conversation, the weather and all of that. And there, again, it shows that Bloom, who is, as we saw in Getting In, he's is a sort of non-person, he takes the last seat. He tries to get into the conversation and is always frustrated. The weather is changing.
2: Uh, pity it did not keep up fine. Wanted for the country. There's the sun again coming out.
3: It's also here that we more or less realise how Bloom avoids mention of Boylan. They ask about the concert. They see Boylan by the way and they're very deferential to him they greet him though he can hardly see it and Bloom wonders why he's so attractive and all of that. When the name Boylan is mentioned he looks at his nails in order to appear casual and nonchalant which of course he isn't. So gradually we realise that there's something that worries Bloom about Boylan who is as we know about to visit. He's coming in the afternoon her songs He tries to tell a story against Ruben J. Dodd, who is supposed to be a Jew, though the actual one was not, I understand. Nobody likes moneylenders. And Blue tells a story of his son trying to commit suicide but he tells a story very badly and it's taken away from him.
2: That's an awfully good one that's going the rounds about Reuben Jay and the son. About the boat, man. Yes, isn't it awfully good? What is that? I didn't hear it. There was a girl in the case and he determined to send him to the Isle of Man out of harm's way but when they were both... What? That confirmed bloody the high, is it? Yes, they were both on the way to the boat and he tried to drown. Drown, Barabbas? I wish to Christ he did. <laughs> Mr.
1: Power sent a long laugh down his shaded
0: nostrils. Yes. No, the son himself. Martin Cunningham thwarted his speech
1: rudely. Reuben Jay
2: and the son were piking at them.
0: Other like... things in it are that Reuben Dodd is supposed to be Jewish, whereas it was just Joyce getting his own back. Reuben Dodd was a Dublin solicitor from whom Mr Joyce got a loan of money, and Mr Dodd was, well, he was unreasonable enough to want it back. <laughs> and uh, Joyce Senior had to sell a lot of his property in order to pay Dodd back. And, of course, there was the added insult that young Dodd was at school at the same time as Joyce, so they would have known one another, which added to the thing, so Joyce was getting his own back at the Dodd family in this way.
2: Oh, we had better look a little serious.
1: Martin Cunningham said, Mr Dedalus sighed. And then, indeed, poor little Paddy paddy wouldn't grudge us a laugh. Many a good one, he told
2: himself.
3: And then suddenly it switches over into the formalised language of death.
2: Poor Paddy. I little thought a week ago, when I saw him last, and he was in his usual health, that I'd be driving after him like this. He's gone from us. As decent a little man as
1: ever wore a hat. He went very suddenly.
2: Break down.
1: Hat.
3: He tapped his chest sadly. But of course, something that nobody... Speaks openly, he he drank himself to death. Uh, So the language of death is always euphemistic. You don't have a notice, say uh, say he he killed himself by drink. And then Bloom says he had a sudden death. The best death. Their wide open eyes looked at him.
2: No suffering, a moment and all is over. Like dying in sleep.
3: No one spoke. What is wrong, of course, is that from a Catholic point of view, this is not the best death. They, of course, thinking that you should have the last rites and all of that. So again, Bloom, when he tries to enter the conversation, is frustrated. How many? All these here once walked round Dublin. Faithful departed.
2: As you are now, so once were we.
3: Bloom is a bit of an outsider. There's a long passage towards the end where he's alone walking mm. among the graves, looking at it, thinking about it. What should be on the gravestone? Bloom isn't in any emotional state about it. Why
0: is he there at all? Yeah,
3: I, I just wonder. I mean, why? I mean, he doesn't know anyone very well. Mm-hmm.
0: No one calls him by his first names. This is the obvious thing in the carriage. Everyone is Jack and Martin mm-hmm. and Simon and bloom and as you say they won't let him talk they cut him out and yet they seem to know an awful lot about them. Mm-hmm. this is the strange thing how do they know about the concert tour that's another thing that is slightly not realistic let's mm. put it this yeah. way uh, it
3: seems to be a community where everybody knows about mm. everything which mm. in a fairly big city like that was already not the case mm. um, so they know each other better mm. than
0: would be normal here yeah. mm. But uh, why do they all regard him as a Jew? As I say, he went to a Protestant school and was baptized as a He never, to my knowledge, from reading the book, went to a synagogue. As a matter of Mm -hmm. fact, one of the things that he feels guilty about is making a joke of his father reading the Jewish books.
3: Obviously death is the theme It's a funeral They talk about all kinds of death There's disease, there's suicide There's murder It's also in the metaphors and things like that Um, The language is coloured by death I was in mortal agony Somebody says in, in exaggeration So there's a lot of words that Suggests death. Uh, he thinks of how old his son Rudy Rudolph would be if he had survived, and he feels very sorry that he doesn't have a son. When he sees the relationship between Simon Dedalus and Stephen Dedalus, which is not an ideal one, and I think we feel, at least I do, that Bloom would be a very considerate father who would take great pride in his son. So that is, see uh, and. At a certain point, the worst death is suicide, and not knowing that Bloom's father committed suicide, and then it's again Mr Cunningham who says, well, it's not for us to judge and all of that.
2: But the worst of all is the man who takes his own life.
1: Martin Cunningham drew out his watch briskly, <coughs> coughed and put it back.
2: The greatest disgrace to have in the family,
1: Mr Power added.
2: Temporary insanity, of course.
1: Martin Cunningham said decisively, we must take a charitable view of it. They say a man who does it is a coward, Mr Dedalus said. It's not for us to judge, Martin Cunningham said. Mr Bloom, about to speak, closed his lips again.
3: Bloom thinks about death what should be put on a gravestone uh, uh, he also thinks what the, the whole funeral the whole cemetery uh, it must be awful i mean here we have these graves and right? underneath you have decaying bodies and you have maggots and all those what uh, he sees a rat and all of that his view of the cemetery is rather undignified he's often sort of turning things Upside down, Mr. Kernan, who is given to pompous phrases Mm. when they walk out, says...
2: The service of the Irish church used in Mount Jerome is simpler, more impressive, I must say.
3: Mr. Bloom gave
2: prudent assent. The language, of course, was another thing.
1: Mr. Kernan said, with solemnity...
2: I am the resurrection and the life.
3: Which seems to be part of the Protestant service and not the Catholic one. And that touches your inmost heart. And in Luther, yeah, yeah, your heart perhaps. But what's the good of the man under under the soil? Your heart perhaps. But what price the fellow in the six feet by two with his toes to the daisies? No touching that. And he thinks the heart is not so much the seat of the affection and this kind of metaphorical stuff, but it's a pump, and he thinks what happens with the idea of the last day, the judgment. Does everybody come with their own bodies? And so there's a lot of uh, underground humour there. That
2: last day idea, knocking them all up out of their graves. Come forth, Lazarus. And he came fifth and lost the job. Get up, last day. And every fellow mousing around for his liver and his lights and the rest of his traps. find damn all of himself that morning.
0: I was surprised about this episode because it didn't sound like an Irish funeral to me. Insofar as it went, it was. But the body of Patrick Dignam was not brought to the church. There was no funeral mass and there were no women at the funeral. And it was a paltry funeral. It was funeral, a small, uh, shabby funeral. Yes, I mean, 12 people at nope. it. I mean, mm-hmm. that was it.
2: Paltry funeral, coach and three carriages. It's all the same. Paul bearers, gold reins, requiem mass, firing a volley, pomp of death.
0: And while they all profess to have great sympathy for the widow and the five children I think that Big Dignam had... When Simon Dedalus I told, is told there's going to be a whip around to, mm-hmm. to tide the widow and the children over for the moment, he says, yes, 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 but doesn't put his hand in his pocket. But we hear that Bloom put his name down for five shillings, which he could ill afford. And later we hear, not alone put his name down for it, but actually gave it over, Uh, actually paid the money, which seems to be an unusual thing to do. Mm. Worth comment, huh? Yes, Mm -hmm. it was. So here he is, the one person who seems to be at the funeral for the right reasons. Mm
2: -hmm. Was he insured?
0: Mr Bloom asked.
2: I believe so.
1: Mr Kernan answered.
2: But the policy was heavily mortgaged. Martin is trying to get the youngster into our town. How many children did he leave? Five. Ned Lambert says he'll try to get one of the girdles into taunts. A sad case.
1: Mr. Bloom said gently.
2: Five young children. A great blow to the poor wife.
1: Mr. Kernan added.
3: Indeed, yes. Mr. Bloom agreed. Something that is new, but not really very conspicuous, is that, I often say for the first time, but it is for the first time that we leave Bloom's perspective and have a few beats where they talk about Bloom, obviously not in his hearing. And that is when Menton asks Cunningham, who is this, uh, Bloom, he remembers Molly and all of that, and he refers to him as, a, why did she marry a coon like that?
1: What is he, he asked, what does he do?
0: Wasn't he in the stationary line?
1: I fell foul of him one evening, I remember, at Bowles. Ned Lambert smiled. Yes, he was, he said. In wisdom, he
3: A traveller for blotting paper.
1: In God's name, John Henry Minton said. What did she marry a coon like that for? She had plenty of game in her then." Has still, Ned Lambert said. He does some canvassing for ads. John Henry Minton's large eyes stared ahead. The barrel turned into a side lane. A portly man, ambushed among the grasses, raised his hat in homage. The gravediggers touched their caps.
3: By the way, there's another undercurrent that surfaces here. It was very strong in the Stephen chapters, and that is Shakespeare. Hamlet, and uh, a lot of references there, Stephen sees himself as a Hamlet figure. And here, too, uh, one thinks of Hamlet and the gravediggers that there are humorous scenes Mm. In a tragedy, and of course the same thing is true about the chapter. Mm. I was always interested in one thing which actually is not in the annotations, when Bloom is um, dismissed by Menton, you know, mm. and it says chapfallen, and it's not a current word at all, and yet it is quite well known, it is in the funeral scene in, in Hamlet, where Hamlet has the skull of Yorick, and that alas, so... Chopped for that's the longer mm. jaw. So at least it's an echo of, of uh, another literary mm. death scene.
1: They walked on towards the gates. Mr Bloom, chapfallen, drew behind a few paces so as not to overhear.
2: Martin, laying down the law...
3: So far, but almost with every chapter, I've I've been very cautious about the Homeric side mm. of it. Uh, I usually don't think it should be forced on readers too soon. But this is the chapter that lends itself to it. Here you have a kind of equivalent in the Odyssey. One of the companions, Elpinor, a minor figure, was drunk, fell from the roof, and had to be buried. Then Circe before Odysseus is sent on his way home he's sent to Hades the ruler of the underworld and we give the chapter also the name Hades and by now I think one would see how useful it is to give the chapters individual names so we can refer to them and Homer describes the journey and then Odysseus has to meet Tiresias the blind seer who can tell him about the future and he also speaks to his mother his dead mother, and he sees all kinds of the great heroes of all of that. So Joyce has the journey to Hades in great detail. Mm. There were four rivers that uh, flowed mm. together in Hades, and on the way they have to cross four waterways: the daughter isn't the, the daughter, the Liffey, and the two the, the Grand the canal, and the Royal so Canal. That, yeah. And then you have uh, Menton, who has a grudge against. Bloom, because Bloom once beat him in a game of bowls. Quite by accident. accident In the presence of Molly, and uh, Menton is resentful, just as Ajax was resentful because Odysseus had once cheated in a big contest and he even committed suicide. So here, I would say, there is even something approaching parallelism. Mm But it's there to take or leave if you don't know, or if you don't know it's important. And there were many readers, including Ezra Pound, that was important for the construction and not for the book. Once the building is there, you don't need the scaffolding anymore. For others, including, by the way, myself, I think this is a very interesting issue because it adds one more possible dimension. Or, to put it differently, Joyce was aware that he couldn't invent anything new. So he puts the card right on the table. The Odyssey is a story that already shows practically all human facets, and he now puts it into an Irish uh, framework. So that Ulysses is also a cultural transposition of something that is very old and has been done very often through the ages.